0: Well, good morning. When you decided to come here this morning, or when you were on your way, did you expect to be happier because you came? All the kids are like, why would we think that? No, but really, did you expect to be more blessed, more joyful, more content? I mean, everyone wants to be happy. Isn't that what we're all, at the end of the day, looking for? Some version of happiness? I mean, there are happiness clubs now that you can go to, and they must... I mean, that's a a pretty bold promise. Come to our club, and you will be happy. Uh, There's all sorts of ways where we're trying to pursue being blessed. And with all the commencement speeches that we're going to be hearing during this season. Surely we're going to be hearing some that say, just do what makes you happy when you leave. Or, you've done it. You've graduated from college. Now you can be happy. Now you can be blessed and live that blessed life. Or at least keep the balance so that you can still be happy. And as I was thinking about this psalm in this sermon, I was reminded of uh, David Brooks's book, Bobo's in Paradise, if anyone remembers that book. Uh, he comes up with this term bobo, which is combining the bourgeois and the bohemian to mean that many of us now try to have both. We try to have our cake and eat it too, meaning we're trying to live this sort of bourgeois life of wealth and influence and abundance and the suburban life that has it all, But also the bohemian life that is authentic and hip and real. And so you have these multi-billion dollar corporations being run by hipsters and Birkenstocks. And that's sort of the picture of the bobo. It's this trying to combine in some sort of weird balance, maybe contradictory things, because we all want to just be happy, don't we? We have so many options, an overwhelming amount of options to choose from. I'm reminded many students, apparently this is a thing now, where they will intentionally double book themselves for meetings throughout the days and then wait till the last minute to decide which meeting to go to because they're not willing to make that decision, to, to make a certain commitment because there's so many choices, and they're not sure which one to jump into. So they're just going to make it at the last minute, and then give a quick text to the person there standing up. It's interesting, but I think a lot of us do that in more ways than we realize. That with all of the options that we're being given, we have much fewer deep and real commitments. And that's part of what Brooks's book looks at. And that's part of what we're going to think about ourselves. Why is that? Is it because we're not quite sure what will make us happy? Or not willing to actually decide? Decisions feel so overwhelmingly hard for us. Well, we come to this psalm that promises blessedness. Or as some translations put it, happy. You will be happy. That first verse, blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord. It's promising us the full life. You will be joyful or content or happy. But it also seems, or at least should seem, totally unapproachable, this psalm. We're coming to this psalm that said we must walk in all of the statutes of the Lord to attain blessedness. Well, right there we should all feel destroyed. If we're we're taking it seriously, if we're honest with ourselves, it's unapproachable because it gives us this picture of the beautiful law that we cannot attain to. But it's also unapproachable because you may not realize it looking at the bulletin, but this psalm is 176 verses long. And... uh, I had mercy on Diane, only asked her to read a few of those. It is 176 verses long because it is so comprehensive that it actually does eight verses, each verse starting with the same letter, and it uses every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 uh, letters in the alphabet, so there's 22 sections. So it's humongous, and it also has this reputation of being incredibly deep. And so apparently Augustine, who is the theologian to end all theologians, if you will, Augustine, writing his Psalms commentary, refused to write on this Psalm because he couldn't he didn't feel like he was up to it. And so he did it all other 149. And then his students kept begging him, You gotta, you gotta comment on this, you've got to preach on this. He said, No, I can't do it. It's too much. It's too much. It's too good. But I can't, so don't worry. <laughs> sorry. I re- that. Sorry. It really is a, a, an unbelievable psalm that we obviously cannot get to all of it. I would encourage you to read all 176 later today. It's not actually that long. It's basically the length of five or six psalms, which we can read in a day. Um, but it also offers us this incredible dynamic relationship with God. That's why it can offer blessedness or happiness. It it gives us this vision, this picture of such an interaction, such a personal and intimate interaction with the Lord of the universe. And so we should really want to figure out how to say this psalm ourselves. And so that's what we're going to do, that's what we're going to approach this sermon as How how can we actually say this? How can we come to the point in which this is our honest confession, our honest prayers? Uh, Before we do that, let's pray. Father, it's true of every week, but it is especially true of this week, Lord, that we cannot hear from Your Word or come into Your presence but for Your grace. And so it is that grace that we ask for, and it is your Spirit that we ask would speak to us, Lord. That you would make this word come alive, that you would open our hearts to receive what you have prepared for us to receive. That we would hear from you, that you would give our hearts peace and contentment, that you would comfort the broken hearted that you would challenge and convict the hard-hearted all to the praise of your glorious grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, to start off, to look at um, verses 1 and 2 just really briefly, I want to look at ways that we do not want to read it. So we're going to get out of the way Bad ways to understand it. Verses 1 and 2, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. And there are two very bad ways to read them, but it's also two ways that Christians often approach the law that I want to get out of the way and sort of clear the ground so that we can approach it properly. The first is to forget that this is covenant language to a promised people and to see this as the standard that we have so that we can approach God. So if we read this and think, okay, that's what I need to be at in order to come into God's presence, for him to listen to me and for him, for, for him to bless me, then we are walking down a road that we will never find the destination of. That's the, that's the legalist, that's the one who thinks that you can actually be blameless and not realizing that that is a standard you've given yourself that you can't meet. You may think of it as you're trying to interact with God before you know you've already been reconciled with him. If you treat the law this way. If you treat God as someone at the top of a ladder, a really, really high ladder that you need to climb, And this is the sort of ladder that it is of blamelessness and holiness you're never going to climb. And so please do not hear the law in this way. It wasn't the way that Israel read it. and It's not the way that we should read it as a Christian. But maybe the more typical Christian heresy, if you will, is to go the opposite extreme and to think, I'm no longer under the law, I'm under grace, I don't need this why is he preaching to me from Psalm 119, the psalm of the law? The psalm that talks about the law of God. Aren't we past that in grace? Well, there's a lot that we can say about that, but one is it really doesn't take sin very seriously because a Christian should want more than just forgiveness. That may sound kind of brash, But a Christian really should want more than forgiveness from our sins, past, present, and future. We should want to live a life without it. We should want to live a life that is killing sin. Without its presence even. Not just its punishment. Not just its condemnation. And so we need the law to show us that. We're not going to leave it behind. We want it to teach us. A life worth living that could actually be a new life that doesn't fall to sin. That's the vision of this new life that we are given in Christ. So we don't want to fall into either one of those traps. We want to land where the New Testament over and over says we are by faith and grace alone, which is in Christ. We have a new life in Christ. And now every aspect of the law that we think about or approach any way that we come to God is based on that once and for all act that we heard proclaimed, the act that we sang, this once and for all justification its the theological term we use. Justification to say, I have a new and right standing before the presence of God. That is where I start. That is not where I hope to get one day. In Christ, that is where I start. That's the foundation on which I stand. And so the new life at the very beginning, the alpha point, is this free grace to say you can come into the presence of God because you are wiped clean. You are pure, as Kevin said. And then we come to the law for continual teaching so that God would subdue sin in us. The larger catechism in 77 talks about the difference between justification and sanctification, so you can go there later if you're interested. But one gives us this absolute, no doubt, you are forgiven. But then sanctification, this life that we are living is God's working in us to subdue the sin that is still around. Even though we know it doesn't condemn us, even though we know that God's wrath has already been dealt with on the cross, for a Christian, you no longer have to wonder, how does God look at me? He looks at you as a beloved adopted child. But now, as that child, you want to live in that new family. And that's what we get to do as God is making us into his image. Let me try to give you an example from this psalm of what I mean. Verse 10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Think about that. What is he asking for? So he says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from my commandments. But if it's really true that with his whole heart he's seeking him, there shouldn't be any risk, should there? Of wandering. Well, this... This is, I think, best expressed in, I don't know if it goes back to Augustine or, or, or someone else, but this sort of controlling principle that I think is really key for the Christian life, key for understanding sanctification and how God is acting in with and through us, the fact that God gives what he commands and commands what he gives. This is going to be a phrase that I want to come back to throughout as we engage Psalm 119 because it's a good picture of this back-and-forth interaction, this union that we have with God that he wants to draw us in as we are being made into Christ. Think about that phrase. God gives what he commands and commands what he gives. I think that summarizes the posture of verse 10. I seek you with my whole heart, O God. Meaning, this is my new life and, and, and it's worth a conviction that magnitude. But I also know that even though that's the command you give me, I need your grace and your spirit to work in me the ability to keep it. And so it's not that God forgives us and then says, have a nice life. It's God forgives us and says, now. Now you can actually do the law. Now you can actually love me and love your neighbor the right way. And I'm going to keep the same commandments and the same law, and I'm actually enabling you to keep them. So we're, let's, let's hold on to that and come back to it later. But if God gives what he commands and commands what he gives, he is giving us a new life. As Romans 13 puts it, we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you notice that phrasing? It's clothing language. Put it on. He said armor of light in the verse two verses beforehand. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you're going to be able to fulfill the law of love as you live into this new life. And so I want to look at uh, three main things that this new life is supposed to uh, consist of out of Psalm 119. The first one, is going to be, it leads to a completely new life. The comprehensiveness of the psalm. The next one is, it actually leads to a happy new life. And then we're going to look at how it leads to a worthy new life. So This new life that is the gift of God, the work of God's free grace, if you will. First, it ought to lead to a completely new life. A whole new life. So I already mentioned how Psalm 119 is incredibly comprehensive. It's the acrostic psalm of all acrostics, which is a fun word just to refer to that alphabet thing I mentioned before. Uh, Every verse in the Hebrew from verses 1 through 8 starts with their first letter, alf. So it's incredibly comprehensive. And it also has eight different words that it uses to really refer to the law or to, to the word. It uses Torah or just the law, as the ESV translates it. it. Uses testimonies, precepts, commandments, statutes, rules, promises, and the word. Sometimes promises and the word is the same. But I say that not because there's not a lot of difference in each of those words. Maybe there's a little bit different emphasis. But the point is that. He's talking about the full revelation that God gives to his people of who he is and who we are called to be. That there is no aspect of our life or the world that ought to be outside of this revelation. That God wants to be the complete Lord of your life and of everyone's life. That he really is that, whether you know it or not. And he wants you to submit in that way. To seek him with your whole heart. To love the Lord your God with your whole mind. And your whole strength. As the psalmist says, having my eyes fixed on all of your commandments. These are not just a few isolated commandments that we can check off. This is the whole of your life, because God is a big God over everything. It always goes back to what we think or who we think God is. And so it's important that we start here as as far as God's word wants to be your entire guidebook, if you will. The guidebook of your entire life. Because it's so easy to compartmentalize our life. And if we think about the overwhelming amount of choices that we have as far as how we spend our time, what we do on Sunday mornings, or any other time of day, God is asking us at a very fundamental level to cut off our choices. To cut off our choices and say, I'm going to go all in in one place. In the word of the Lord. In the place that leads me to God. Now, cutting off our choices is, seems to be the antithesis of everything good and free and right in our society, right? Because we all want all of the choices we can have. But if you think about something like marriage, that's exactly why marriage actually leads to a deeper and more free life of love. Because notice what marriage is supposed to say. When, some, when two people get married, the ideal is that I love you so much That I'm willing to love you in the future even when all these other things may change. Even when my feelings may change. Even when you may change. I'm willing to cut off all my options. Because I want to experience that deeper love. Someone who's not married is actually less free to experience that sort of love and that sort of life than someone who is. It's totally upside down from the way that we think of freedom and the way that we think of love in our society. But if you think about it, it makes sense because someone who's married shouldn't say, but I'm still going to keep my options open because I still want to be free. That's not going to lead to a deeper love, is it? It's just going to be more and more superficial. It's part of what Brooks is getting at with all of the choices that we have in our society. Doesn't it seem like we're becoming more and more superficial? We're, we're just so wide that we never go deep. This psalm and God is calling us to go deep. And I want us to see that that is actually incredibly liberating. And I try to, um, I try to convince students of this. I don't know how successful I am sometimes. But when you have a command from God, that is so liberating. Why? Because you actually know what to do. You're no longer paralyzed of thinking about all these other options you may have to do in that particular situation or in your life. And here we're told, well, you do have a command. In every aspect of your life, you have a command. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. That's the the command. You may not always know how, and you think that's sort of really cute of you, Pastor. You give me lots of help by saying that. But it's absolutely true At the most fundamental level, that is your command of what to do. Love love God, love your neighbor. That should be liberating. We don't have to be caught in this paralysis that so many of us seem to be where we don't know what to do. What if we make the wrong choice? FOMO! What if we miss out on something? For, For the older folks, FOMO is fear of missing out. What if we miss out on something better? Or something that's going to make me happier. No. What if God gives you. All things. But he demands. Your entire life. Remember that that phrase. God gives what he commands. He commands what he gives. If he gives. You everything. What are you trying to hold back from him? What are you not willing to surrender? What are you still trying to keep as your own? Because he has a right to everything that is yours. It's his. It doesn't belong to you. Not even your own life, we're told. Not even your own life is not our own. But that actually is such... Good news. Maybe you notice the um, quote we had as the pre-worship meditation. This is a little picture of um, Psalm one nineteen and how we can live our entire lives, our comprehensive lives, in the presence of God. This is how one one uh, he's a counselor, Dave Pallison, one author put it. Psalm one nineteen is where I go to learn how to open my heart about what matters to the person I most trust. I affirm what I most deeply love. I express pure delight. I lay my sufferings and uncertainties on the table. I cry out in need and need for joy. I hear how to be forthright without self righteousness. I hear how to be weak without self pity. I learn how true honesty talks with God, fresh, personal, and direct. Then he goes on and on. And I just want us to give us a picture a picture of God really is. That big. And he really does demand everything. Psalm 19 then tries to show us not only that this new life leads us to a completely or whole new life, but some that may not be so surprising to us. Of course, God is overall, he demands all from us. The second point I want us to think about should be more surprising to us. This new life is actually meant to be a happy life. And that he's actually trying to convince us that holiness is happiness. Holiness is blessedness. Now how many of you when you think of holiness or godliness and you think of your own growth in holiness, actually think you're growing in being more blessed or being is it, is that more desirable in your mind? Is that going to make you happy? Do you think that? Doesn't it seem so Opposite, it seems like they contrast with each other. We've totally uh, turned what some of these words mean upside down. Holiness means not being happy. Godliness means taking away all my fun. But that's not what we have here, and that's not what we have all over Scripture. That this law is supposed to be in our new life. It's supposed to be good. It's supposed to lead us to goodness and blessedness. Because it's God's. It always goes back to who we think God is. Go back to um, Psalm, it's 89. Sorry, not Psalm 89, verse 89. In verse 89, we get a picture of who he is picturing God to be. Who he is picturing God to be. And it comes just after the deepest and darkest part of Psalm 119. Right after the darkness of the stanza before it, he gives this amazing description of who God is. He says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens, your faithfulness endures to all generations, you have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Is that the picture of who God is in your mind? The one that, even in the midst of all the suffering the psalmist is going through, he's the one that fixes all things. Meaning, he establishes all things. That he is establishing your life. That his word is stable and concrete and will not move. That God is sovereign. We don't think that growing in godliness is going to lead us to to a much better life because we have a pretty negative view of who God is, don't we? Why is it that we would think God would give us more and more of his life And it wouldn't lead to happiness. What is wrong with our picture of God if that's true? Why do we think that God will give us more life without more righteousness? Exactly. But think about the opposite. Think about it from the other point of view. Do we expect... Do we expect that God would give us more and more of his life or make us more and more like Jesus without making us happy, with making us less happy? Do we think that's true? Maybe you can think of a scenario or a situation in which you imagine God commanding you to do something and it's simply going to lead to more and deeper unhappiness and oppression. Do you think of that? If you put it that way, you probably don't. But I think underneath all of our sin, there's an aspect of that. So if you, take, if you take an example. Take an example of people-pleasing. This is, this is one I struggle with. So it's, it's, uh, it's either saying, there's really three options, I think. When I struggle with people-pleasing, these are the three options. One is, I would rather please others than please God. For some reason, it seems more worthwhile to please others than please God. Or I think it's going to be, holier to fit in rather than to stand out. Right? We want to please others. We want to make sure everyone approves of us. And so often my my sin nature tells me I don't want to ruffle too many feathers, even if God's calling me to stand out. Or, very similarly, I think I'll be happier if I please others rather than pleasing God. Now, either we think of, of one or more of those options when we decide to please please others in the face of a command from God. What is it for you? What is it about who God is or what you think holiness is that leads you to, to that sort of silly conclusion? Another way to think of it is every no that we receive from God, every command that seems so harsh and stark and ugly that we don't want to think about, If we really understood it, it always comes with a better yes. Every no comes with a better yes. And that's how the Reformers interpreted the Ten Commandments. It's not just do not commit adultery. It's also have the best sex you can. It's not just do not covet. It's be perfectly pure and content with what you have because God is so good. Because God is so holy. It's not just do not steal or do not bear false witness. There's always a better yes on the other side that God is giving us. That's what the law is meant to be and to do for us. It's to teach us those better yeses, to give us the vision of those sorts of things, of the good life, the blessed life, the happy life in Christ. What is it about uh, your heart or your understanding of who God is that is not quite convinced of that yet? It's not quite convinced maybe that that things like purity or steadfastness or being honored rather than put to shame or being made more upright and righteous or delighting in goodness, all of these things that get mentioned in our passage, what is it about those things that don't seem worthwhile? What is it that God needs to work in the affections of your heart to show you that this really is good? That I could actually grow in blessedness and happiness if I trust it. If I remember who God is. That picture in Romans 13 of fulfilling the law of love. That we have been freed from all condemnation. From the need to justify ourselves or please others. And so Paul then says, now act as if you have a debt. Not any real debt, because the debt has been paid in Christ. But act as, you, as if you have a debt to love everyone. Does that seem like a good life to you? A happy life? It should. It should seem that way. This dynamic relationship that the psalmist has should seem good and happy. We get to interact with God's word. I saw a uh, headline in the Babylon Bee, which is like a Christian satire site. And the headline was, man sitting literally three feet away from Bible, ask God to speak to him. And it has a picture of someone praying and the Bible sitting on the table. And the point is, we have God speaking to us all the time in the scriptures. And that's always what the psalmist is doing because he realizes that I get to interact with God's word, the fullest revelation of who he is, through the scriptures. And that's why he can say, I want to learn your statutes. I know them. Show me more of them. I want to grow in righteousness. I know what righteousness is, but I want to know more of it. It's unlike any other type of knowledge because the more we get, the more we want to know. And so that leads us then to really change what we consider to be worthy. And this is the last the last major point that I want us to consider is the new life is not only totally and completely new, it's not only a, a happy new life, it's actually a worthy new life, that it changes what we consider to be worthy of our deepest desires. And notice that when anything tries to compare with God's law and God's word in the Psalms. Over and over he says, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. One section that we didn't hear read reads this way. The insolent smear me with lies. This is verse 69. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The law to him is worth the suffering. It was was good for me that I was afflicted, he said, so that he could learn the statutes of the Lord. How bizarre does that sound? But when we remember what God's word is, that should fit. In the passage we did here, Red, it's something similar. Verse 83, for I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, which is a bad thing. It's kind of a weird metaphor, but that's bad. You don't want to be like wineskin in the smoke. Yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? How long is it worth to endure for the Lord? I mean, we know that this is true in so many other things. In sports, people are willing to work out, go through a lot of pain so that they can get better. You can't imagine a mom just giving birth and, and having the first hug and kiss of the new baby, and she's saying, this is all I get. That's it. No, she knows that the pain was worth it. At least most of her knows that. I mean, we know that suffering is, is worth a good goal, something that is worthy to pursue, but some, for some reason we don't think God is that worthy of it. Why not? Why is it? What else does your heart evaluate as more worthy than the Lord? What else could be better? Listen to the way that Dostoevsky puts it, uh, a Russian novelist. See if this could even be possible for you, what he says. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. Like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small mind of man that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments of the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. Is it even possible that the picture of God in your mind and in your heart can do that? Or do we let the suffering and the evil of the world and of our lives just overwhelm us? It distracts us. It it colors our pictures of who God is and the word that He gives us in Scripture, the revelation of who He is. Now, the psalmist knows that it's worth the suffering. It's worth this conviction, this drawing a line in the sand, these statements of conviction over and over. He says things like, I will praise with my whole heart and I will seek you, and I will delight, and I meditate on you day and night. He knows that it's worth these sorts of resolutions. Not because he's arrogant. We may hear these statements and think, what does he think he is? I can never say that. No, that's not the point. Not not because he thinks he's arrogant. Remember, we're approaching this as a new born-again person in Christ. And so I can say, I know I'm not going to be condemned, and so I'm taking a new stand because this is my life now, and I will praise you. Christ has already fallen in my place, and so I don't have to worry about falling into damnation or condemnation or any sort of judgment. I can stand and say, yeah, this is who I am in Christ. I will praise you. I will praise you, Lord, because my confidence is not in myself anymore. Because my strength is not in my strength anymore. So when I see my weakness, I can point to him, and then I can say with the psalmist, I will praise you. Even when I have nothing else in my life to point to, I can point to Christ. Because I will seek you, Lord, with my whole heart, even when it seems like I have no strength left in my whole heart. Nothing left. We can come back to Psalm 119. And say this, Jesus is saying this in our behalf as he becomes our wisdom, as he fulfills the law for us. He says it for us when we don't even know what to pray. We can just mutter these words as our prayers and say, somehow, Lord, by your spirit, by your strength, I will seek you. Teach me your statutes. Teach me your law of all things because everything else that I'm trying to rely on, every other law that I try to make my satisfaction or my justification, it fades. Everything else, everything else that we are going to rely on is going to fade, and it's not going to be worth our life. If you think about what is your life worth living for? I remember in in C.S. Lewis's essay on pacifism, when he's arguing why he's not a pacifist, he says one reason for a Christian is that death is not the end for a Christian. And so death doesn't actually seem as bad as it may appear. And he makes this argument that there are probably a number of things that we would be willing to die for. Maybe we're willing to die for our country. Maybe we're willing to die for our, our family. Maybe we're willing to die for certain ideals. But to be willing to live for something? What should we be willing to live for? There's, there's nothing in, in, in this world other than Jesus Christ that we should be willing to live for. You are, you are made for things way better than anything else that you can live for. To live for your family? Your family's not that great. It's not going to survive. I'm sorry. To live for the degree that so many people are getting on these celebrations of commencement, to live for that, to live for the, the money and the success and the reputation, God made you for something way better, way more sustaining. He gives us such incredible dignity and then says, but you have a God-shaped hole that only I can fill. God really is worth all of our reputation and lives, the deepest desires that we have. And so we come and we continue to fight. We continue to pursue so many competing gods, competing glories. Whether it's the many options that we have. Whether it's all the degrees that we earn. We come trying to find something worth living for when all this time, Jesus Christ is saying to every one of you, whether you are a Christian or not, Jesus says this, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you are not a Christian and you have not experienced that, he says that to you. Everything else that you are going to pursue and rely on is not going to give it what you think. And if you are a Christian, he's still saying that to you because we have this dynamic interaction, this life with him where he offers us things that we can't even get on our own. Where he gives us new life, and then he wants us to pray that we could have it more. Where he commands us to love, and then he says, come to me that I would empower you to love so that you may be built up from one glory to the next into the body of Christ. That's what God is doing in your life, in our lives, in this church. If you're asked, what's God doing in your life? Ultimately, he is making you more and more like this psalmist to say, oh, how I love your law. You are making me more and more in Christ. to The praise of God's glory. That's the vision of our new life. Let's pray as we come to the